Efendim Bismillah ve salatu ve selamu ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men wala. So we're going to continue on in our study of educating children classical advice for modern times. And this is the sixth session, but inshallah we will be recapping um, that some of session five, just very briefly, uh, last time that the internet connection was not as stable where we had the class, so. <clears throat> and also, it's also good to remind ourselves and to emphasize some of these very important points. And um, that when he says here, the uh, he speaks about the importance of the upbringing of a child and raising them in the proper way, educating them appropriately. And one of the important things is, that he mentions, is during this period of haldana, this early stage of the child's development, before the child reaches the sin at tamiz, literally the age of discretion, uh, uh, it is that at this time that we should start being aware of certain things that we weren't previously aware. One of the most important is in relation to ch uh, the, what the children eat. And so he actually goes into great detail in the, the way that we should approach the child's eating habits. And um, of course, before that, he gets into a discussion of uh, nursing the child and some of the etiquettes associated with it. And um, that one of the important things that we can always remember is that when the child is being nursed by the mother, it is very good for the mother to be in a state of the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala. Um, this will have a direct effect on the child, that as she nurses the child, just as, that it's also recommended every time that a male or female cooks food is to be in the remembrance of Allah Jalla Jalla. That state of dhikr and remembrance and awareness will affect food. It will make the food more spiritual, make the food more blessed, and that those that then eat that food, that it will also have a profound impact upon them. This is very real. Halal is one thing, and there's no doubt if we are eating halal food that it will have a positive impact upon the human being. But if you add to just merely that halal dimension, a dimension of spirituality, a dimension of being in the state of remembrance of Allah Ta'ala, it will have even more impact upon the child and be even better. And then he's going to get into um, that some of these etiquettes. And so he says... And after he has grown, you will find him desiring to eat incessantly and unceasingly. And those of us that have young kids know that this is the state of children, is that you feed them and then they want more food, you feed them and then they want more food. But there are certain things that we can start teaching them from a very young age. In particular, is that to learn to eat with the right hand. And these etiquettes have to be told to the children in a loving in a beautiful way, and then reinforced for many years. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, that all of a sudden, that khras, they'll pick them up. And I even remember myself, that my own mother, may Allah bless her, uh, being very particular about manners at the dinner table when we came together to eat. And this is very important, and that even though in the moment sometimes you're just like, Rah, like why do I have to follow all of these rules? But that in the long run, you're very thankful for having been taught manners. And um, that in retrospect, that you that are very that happy to have that gone through that process of refinement. 
So this is one of the first things, is that we teach our children to eat with the right hand. And you could extend this not just into eating, but also in other things that, that we do. Um, whenever that we give someone, someone something, thank you, is that we should always give something with the right hand. Whenever we receive something, we should always receive something with the right hand. And this is a good habit to get our children in, to do. Is that if they try to hand us something with the left hand, is that we gently say to them, no, with the right hand. And then they hand it with the right hand. Or if we're handing them something and they reach out to grab it with the left hand, is that gently that we say to them, no, the right hand. And then we that hand it to them in their right hand. And then saying the Besmana dutifully every time. In order for us really to have blessing in our food, is that we have to say Bismillah. And that we also uh, that recognize that in saying Bismillah, it's a protection as well for the food. It will not only make the food more blessed, but it's also a protection. And in relation to the sources of evil, when we say the dua to enter into the home, when we say the dua of eating, is that the source of evil shaitan that is unable to enter into the home and is unable to that take his part of the meal. And we might think about these things and, and to think that, oh, maybe they're metaphors. No, these are realities. Even though we can't see them, they're realities. When you enter into your home, you say, Bismillah, and that you ask Allah Ta'ala for the khair al-mawlaj wa khair al-makhraj, right? And then you send salams to the people that are present. You recite ayat al-kursi. It will be a protection for that entrance into the home. When you say bismillah and you say the dua before eating, it will be a protection that for that act of eating. And part of that protection relies in the diminishing of the source of evil, i.e. shaitan. Now, and then we start to teach them other that manners like, and he should not eat before his companion. Related to this as well, is that if our children are playing outside, and they might come in quickly and grab a bag of chips or grab some snacks and then run outside. And then there's other kids outside and they're eating. And the other kids are not eating. We should teach our children this is not something noble, this is not something good. Is that if you're going to be eating, is that you share. You bring enough outside for everyone to eat. And <clears throat> if you're inside, is that you always that let your companion start eating first. You always make sure that your companion is that served first. So this is really important that we teach our kids these etiquettes from an early age. And that in general is that if they see their parents being good hosts, usually that they'll fall in line and to learn how to be a good host. And I have to say that having entered into this dean now over 20 years ago, one of the greatest blessings of being Muslim is to experience the natural generosity of Muslims. It's just unbelievably beautiful to this day. Just beautiful. This whole concept of diyafa, of hospitality, and ikram al-dayf, honoring your guests literally, but also hospitality. It really is something beautiful, and this is being lost in the modern world, and as Muslims that embrace that modern standards of living, modern ways of living, this diminishes too. And this is sad. We don't want this to diminish. We want to preserve this. And we want our children to also uh, represent this 
and to live this. Um, it's one of the most important traits of all. And um, that, that all the traits of character are important. But if you're going to say two in particular that are especially important, generosity and courage. Generosity and courage. And we should think very carefully, how can you and I inculcate in our children those two? Generosity and courage. And in fact, they actually go hand in hand. Because in order to that really be a generous person, you have to be, you have to be courageous. Because you have to be willing to sacrifice. If you're not willing to sacrifice, it is virtually impossible to truly be karim in the way that it was understood that by people religiously, um, especially that in that certain places of the Muslim world. So he should not eat before his companion. That we should inculcate this in them. Make sure that your friends are tended to first and then that you can eat with them and take part with them. And he should eat the food nearest to him. Now, the vast majority of us spend, when we eat, we eat on separate plates and we eat at the dinner table or wherever it is that we're eating. Um, it is good from time to time to also serve food on a single plate. So our children, that if they're in that situation where everyone's eating from one plate, um, that they'll know how to act. And um, I've been with people before that have not been trained like this in Yalatif. It's a bit embarrassing when you come together with multiple people and people's hands are going all over the plate. That's very embarrassing. Is that when you go to eat with a group of people, is it you're supposed to eat what's in front of you? The next person over eats in front of him and so forth and so on. And um, all throughout the Fokir studies, we never ate alone ever, ever. You always ate with other people. It's just part of that how things are in Mauritania, in the Yemen, is that always we were eating with other people from one plate. And it's good tarbiya for the nafs. I was uh, joking with Bunda before, is that uh, uh, when we were in Tarim, is that the, uh, the Indonesian students not only ate together, they would drink from the same teacup. Right, and even there, I was like, "Okay, marhaban, I'm used to eating together, but from the same teacup. Like, can't we all at least have our own teacup?" <laughs> but they'd have like a little thing of tea, and they'd have one cup, and there'd be like five to seven, eight people around the cup, and it's almost as if like you have no nafs, like you're an angel. What are you? Right, there's just one little small plastic cup, and everyone takes a little sip and puts it down, a little sip. It starts to almost be done. They pour a little bit more tea in it. And um, that, in many ways, that's a very beautiful thing, of course. And um, nowadays, people are so hypersensitive to germs and madridesh and this, and don't touch my food, and that it's very common to this day in large gatherings. They have a set of cups that they pass around to everybody, that they fill up, and then everyone drinks from it. When it's empty, they fill it up, and then that one cup passes around to everybody. And I know that if you looked at it from a strictly medical sense and studied it in the way that germs and bacteria and age and all this type of stuff, people right, get really sensitive to these things. But honestly, um, I think people have become the, too sensitive in general to these things. It's actually better to, when you start going to 
the Muslim world to visit places, to live with the people, eat the fruits, eat the vegetables, and get sick. Right? What I mean by that, inshallah, you don't get too sick. But all of us went through it, where it's one way or the other. It's either you can't keep anything down or that you can't use the facilities properly. You get terribly sick. But then after you do that, mashallah, tabarakallah, for the most part, you're fine. You could drink the water of the people, you could eat the fruits and vegetables of the people, and you get accustomed to it. Your, your stomach gets used to it. And then, pretty much everywhere you travel, mashallah, tabarakallah, right? you don't tend to have any problems with that. Um, and um, I think that's just a, a, you know, one way we could potentially look at these things. Anyhow, eating the food nearest him is important. It is important that at least some of our meals, let's serve them on one plate, even if it's not every meal. Teach our children how to eat if they're indeed eating with a number of people. Now the exception to that is with fruit, they say. So if there's like a basket of fruit, you don't have to take what's near to you. You can actually sift through and choose the one that is that you want. But again, we should always teach our children is that the best fruits you should preserve, you should prefer others over yourself in relation to them. And you'd be surprised how important this is. If we are the ones that always eat the best food or we race home to get that leftover whatever or that thing that's in the pantry and eat quickly before anyone else comes home. No, this is not the way the true people of Iman are, is that they prefer others over themselves. And so sometimes is it when you're eating in one plate that you have some of the choice food on your side and that it's a part of that true manhood and womanhood is that you push that over to the side of other people. Right? You might take a piece and put it over here, put it over here, uh, so that you share with other people. And then, of course, that chewing food completely. This is one of the key etiquettes. Not only is this good for your health, this is from the sunnah of our Prophet ﷺ. And as we mentioned before, is that we that go through spiritual training in relation to the food that we eat. And you don't even have to say that even in the food we eat, because actually, eating is one of the most fundamental things of being human. And that what really makes your eating worship is the intention that you make behind it and the etiquettes that you have that during it, or you could say before, during, and after it. The etiquettes that you have associated with it. This turns eating in to a very different experience. And then, and not to hurry or hasten for the next piece. So look at these two beautiful etiquettes. You chew your food completely. And I think we mentioned last time that for an average type of morsel, it's roughly 21 bites. And if you've tried that, that's actually quite a long time. And if it's a, a bit of a softer food, it might be less than that. Obviously something like soup is going to be less. Mm. But then there's others that are like tough meat or something like that. Uh, you might even have to do more than that. <coughs> MashaAllah. So, <clears throat> we're going to move on now. <clears throat> Excuse me. To the next set of etiquettes, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. Okay. <clears throat> So then he says, 
ويأكل اليابس من الطعام تعلما بحتا بلا إدام حين فحين في العشاء والغداء كي لا يرى الإدام حتما أبدا and he should eat of food that is dry so he becomes accustomed to it in its purest form occasionally for lunch or for supper so that he does not think it must always be luxurious when you jannibhu funun zina okay actually that's going to get into clothes so we'll speak about this first so he says and he should eat of food that is dry so he becomes accustomed to it in its purest form and um Really, the, the, what he is saying here is that, that idam is, in Arabic, is anything that you eat with bread. So it might be something like a condiment. And that our Prophet ﷺ is known to have said, Ni'mal idamul khal. This is from his humility. That he says that what a great condiment vinegar is. What a great that, uh, substance to eat with bread. And even though people normally don't think of vinegar being that the best thing to eat with bread, um, yes, in some fancy restaurants that they'll have some fancy vinegars and oils that you dip bread in and things like that. Um, but um, this is from the humility of our Prophet and how that he never ever once was known to have ever complained about a single item of food ever. If he that ate from it, that he would thank Allah for it. If he asked what it was and it wasn't something he was used to, he might not eat it. Like when the Prophet was uh, presented lizard, he respectfully said that this is not something that I find where I'm from. So he didn't eat it. But at the same time, never once did he that criticize food. Um, so what he's saying here is, and this is a principle, again, if you look at the simplicity of the people before us, these types of things make a lot of sense. Um, because in many traditional societies until recently, I mean, this was how it was when I, I lived in places like this in Mauritania. The food was extremely, extremely simple. Like lunch was rice, right? Rice with dried meat and black eyed peas. That's it. No fruits, no vegetables, nothing else. That's it was rice. And on a good day, it would have black-eyed peas and dried meat. On a also good day, I, just, I can't fall into my own trap here, that another good day, it would be maybe just black-eyed peas or maybe just dried meat. Um, and sometimes it would be just rice with a little bit of butter. And they did use cooking oil and stuff like that. But the point is, it was very plain. When I actually first went to Mauritania, it was so bland, I couldn't eat it. I couldn't eat it. Like, I literally tried to eat it, but I couldn't eat it. And then, like, there's no stores. There was no store. So it's not like you can go and, like, buy Skittles or a Twix bar or, like, yani, chips or something from, like, you know, the store or, like, a soft drink or something like that. And there's no juice, which is my weakness. I can eat plain food, but there's no juice of any sort. And so you're like, my goodness. And I got so hungry. That I remember Sheikh Rami Ansor was with me. And like, we couldn't eat. We couldn't process the food. And so we had these biscuits. And these biscuits, they're just small little things. Like, I wonder if how much salt, if any. There was salt in there, but it, you can't really even taste it. They're so plain. So we tried to make cereal out of them. So we got this condensed milk. 
<laughs> and then there's not there's no there's no electricity, so there's no like cold water. So we tried to get as cold as water as we could get. We managed to find some sugar. We tried to make cereal, but then it backfired because we didn't respond too well to that contraption. But that's what was available. And that was very common for them. That's how they lived for the longest time. Nowadays things are changing. Uh, but even in Tarim, uh, when that until fairly recently, food was very simple. You ask people that got there in the late 90s, and um, you ask what the stores had, food was very simple. Like even in Tarim, like our lunch meal was rice and fish almost every day. Rice and fish. And um, bizbaz was a little bit of the, like some, like, <clears throat> like sriracha type, that hot dip of some hot sauce. Um, and that's it. There wasn't this idea of four and five different side dishes and so forth. And um, anyhow, I know in some more advanced cultures, obviously you go to places like Cairo and you go to places like Damascus and that many other Morocco and many other beautiful Muslim cities and you know there's a very complex set of foods and that you know I don't want to eliminate the cultural dimension from this um, but definitely from a standpoint of health and from a standpoint of Dean the more simple that we can get when it comes to our food intake the better and we're speaking about this in the context of children <clears throat> it's a good thing to get our children used to simple food and if you're going to cook a lavish meal, three or four or five side dishes, try to have that be for guests. It's perfectly legitimate too, that want to really, that serve your guests, that a lot of food, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's a perfectly legitimate thing. Um, and then, uh, but on a regular basis, try to get in the habit of eating simply. And um, it's, if we, and, and this, this principle applies to so many other things. He's going to actually talk now about clothing. It applies to everything. And generally speaking, I mean, it's this is scientifically proven. Spoiling your children, and the reality is all of our children are spoiled, unfortunately, is one of the worst things we could possibly do for our children. It's one of the worst things we could do. And that we are setting them up for failure in life by spoiling them, by doing too much for them. That, that, that children that struggle a little bit, children that have chores, children that have a little bit of difficulty, is that in a controlled environment, it builds resilience. You don't want a child that they're pricked and like, ah. You want, and I mean not just physically pricked, but also through life. That our children that have to learn how to act in these societies. I think it's very important, especially at the community level, when... Problems happen, and problems will happen in every community. There's no such thing as a perfect community. That the Prophet himself, said in his community of companions, there were people that committed major sins in his community. That in the Prophet, said was there with them. And a long list of other things. And that we still know that that generation was the best of generations. And the Prophet was there. And you have a long list of kabair major wrong actions that were committed. And the Prophet was among them. And that how did he, that help them repent? How did he, that help stabilize the society even though these things are happening? If those things didn't happen, this is from the standpoint of haqiqah, 
how would we know what to do in difficult situations? So this is how we have to view that early generation, is that it was that from the standpoint of what the ummah after needs to learn, because all of the companions have, we, we, if they died upon iman, and that's a condition to be a companion anyway, that will be forgiven by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We know this through verses in the Qur'an. But what we need to do is when we have issues in the community, to turn them into learning experiences. That your child is exposed to something that, hmm, that's probably not the best thing for makes learning experience. Right, your child's on the bus that they hear some bad language. Right, they're around someone, they see something they're not supposed to see. They, um, that have an incident happen that of some sort. We should turn these into learning experiences for our children. And um, that we should be very open to hearing that what it is that other kids that they know at school are saying and this type of thing. And then teach them, oh, that's not the way we talk. Oh, we definitely don't use that word. Oh, that, that's not how we think about these things. Oh, what do you do in that situation? If some, and then on the positive sense, when people are in need, also teaching these things. It's very, very important that we're aware of that. But honing back in here on food for a minute before we move on, um, that this is a good thing, is that we get our kids used to simple foods and simple meals. And then from time to time that we let also do nice things for them. And there's nothing wrong with from time to time that celebrating certain occasions, taking them to uh, restaurants and choosing the best of what is available and um, going to other people's houses for food and so forth. All these things are fine within limits and with the right intentions. Now, <clears throat> and then the author says, وَإِنْ طَلَبْ مِنْ قُوشٍ أَوْ مُلَوَّنَا يُقُولُ ذَاكَ لِلنِّسَاءِ لَا لَنَا لِبَاسُ أَهْلِ الْفِسْقِ وَالتَّخْنِيثِ وَأَحْمَكٍ وَفَاجِرٍ خَبِيثٍ So then he says, And keep him away from various forms of adornment, and all types of expensive clothes, and clothe him in white cotton, so that he feels he is not in need of any other. And... If he asks for embellish or colored clothes, say that is for women and not for us. Clothes of the sinful, the effeminate, foolish, debauchy, evil. So that needs a little bit of commentary. Um, um, what he's saying here simply is, is that along the same lines with food, is that it is a good idea to get our children accustomed to simplicity. Now I know what's going through a lot of our minds is that how practical really is this in our time? Because that... Many of the clothes that our children are wearing are brand name and they're looking for this or they're looking for that, especially when they get into those teenage years and everybody else around them is dressing with that, you know, with a certain type of fashion or certain types of brand names. Um, that we have to do our best. There's a difference between permissibility and what's best. Okay, at the level of permissibility, that's one thing. And permissibility is permissibility. And that you could have something that's not ethically the best thing, but the, at the basic level, it still remains permissible in Sharia. And you can't change that. Permissible is permissible. 
and you can't fault someone for doing something that's permissible. Okay, and um, I know there's a lot of putting into question when it comes to eating certain types of meat, wearing certain types of clothing, and what you're supporting, and the sweatshops, and all of that. Um, but in many cases, some of these products still have a basic level of permissibility. And then you build upon that. It doesn't mean that's what's best. But we have to, in that our minds, be ready when it comes to our children to understand the following balance is that it's, we all want to have high expectations for our children and high hopes that they all become from the kibar of the awliya. They become from the siddiqeen and from the highest saints of this ummah. And at the same time, we also have to recognize where they're at in the moment. And when they're younger, it's just simply easier. And then as they transition into that teenage, those teenage years, it becomes much more difficult where you move from lofty expectations and high hopes to reality. And then not just reality, like lesser of the two evils. And doing things that normally you would never do just to prevent backlash, just to prevent worse things from happening. And all kids are different. And the reality is is that um, if you just... If I think about my own American teachers, people that grew up here, and their own children, and the state of their own children, and I think about that generation that converted in the 60s and in the 70s, and many of us, while we're still living in these, this time where our children are young, we're living in a utopia, to be quite frank. We're living in a... that type of utopia and alhamdulillah there's a lot of children that turn out very well but if you look at percentage wise just growing up in the United States of America I mean estimates already only say that about 10% of the Muslim Muslim population even pray Jummah in the United States Um, and I didn't really realize that until I went back to I dropped out of college went overseas came back and went back to finish my bachelor's in 2010 and all of a sudden here I am old man in class with young kids and I took Persian 1 and um, I, I, I was shocked at, and many of them were Muslim I just had never been around um, non-practicing Muslims before and it was that college experience for me that just like <laughs> in being in a language class where I'm just like my God, have you ever said La ilaha illallah once in your life? I don't know. Like to that degree, I don't know if they've said La ilaha illallah once. Prayer, everything, like never even a consideration to even have done so. And then thinking about it after become Muslim is that Osama and I and other friends that I have from high school, we actually had Muslims in our high school. That I didn't even know that they were Muslim until that way after. And I knew the type of things they were doing. And so my point is, is that, um, that we have to have high expectations for them. We have to have high hopes for them. But then we have to do our best to deal with the reality of the affair. And sometimes, and this hurts and it's painful, we have to compromise some of our high hopes 
to make sure that we don't do something wrong at that stage based upon where that child is at. And the most important thing of all is that the child dies loving Allah and His Messenger. And then after that, that they pray. That's the most important thing of all. You cannot do something even if they abandon prayer completely. It's one of the worst things you could possibly do. But you want them to die with love in their heart for Allah and His Messenger. That is the single most important thing to preserve their iman is love of Allah and His Messenger. And then there's degrees after that. And um, so I, I know in that having spoken to a lot of people in great detail that we could sit in class here and talk about a utopian reality of wanting all of our children to become great, which we do want that. And I do believe that if you put the children in the right environments from an early age, they can become awliya. I do believe that. But this is why we have to create environments. This is where the majadis are so important. This is why we got to work this out. We have to work this out. And um, in more traditional societies, there was tarabi at every level of society. Until recently. Increasingly, that's breaking down. But in our society, if they're not going to come to an maqasid, where are they going to go? This is our scenario. If they're not going to come to the local institution or masjid or, or whatever, where are they going to go? And we have to find a way that in our regular gatherings is that it's a profound experience for everyone. From the child that's in the womb to the nursing baby to all the different ages to someone who's older. And that at, as, a, as a foundational, that as, a, as, as, as a foundation, everyone is welcome. And not only that we don't need to say, oh, and women and children are welcome. That's just a ridiculous way to even frame it. Of course everyone's welcome. Right? That's a, a given that everyone's welcome. That we have to start from there and then find ways to make it work. Right? Find ways to make it work where um, it's a good experience for everybody. And uh, we're still working with that. And um, I think we have a little bit more work to do like in our particular community. On, on how to make it um, a very healthy experience for people of all different ages and to, to make sure that everyone is getting what they need. And um, ideas, we're always open to ideas of improvement in that regard and enhancing that. But th this is how we have to approach this. And um, because the majalis are key for, you know, and that you'll notice is that if your children get used to hearing the praises of the Rasul Wasallam is that instead of singing a song from some like, like kafir singer that, or rapper, is that they will be singing the burda in their free time. You will find this. If you expose them to beautiful poetry and to beautiful sounds, this is what will be going through their head. And you'll, and, and you'll just hear them sometimes at a distance. Right? Do that. And so it's so important that they hear this regularly, and that becomes imprinted on their soul. And when they grow up with that for 10, 12, 13, more, 15 years, oof, very hard to get out. Very hard to get out. And the hope is, is that if the foundation is strong, is that then they'll be able to weather the storm. The storm is serious. 
and there's different degrees. But the hope is, is that they'll be able to weather. But I really believe is that that dimension of love of Allah and His Messenger and loving the awliya and the pious people is the most fundamental thing of all. And that we have to approach the deen not as a set of rules of things that they have to do. Yes, at a certain point you have to do this. So I'm not saying that we just open up the door for them to do anything. It's important that we, you know, enforce certain things. Um, and they will be thankful at a later time that when we wake them up, right, daily for prayer. That's not an easy thing to do. Oh my goodness. That I, I've told you all this before on multiple occasions. That that when that Allah Ta'ala says, وَكَانَ يَأْمُرُ أَهْلُهُ بِالصَّلَاةِ And he used to, you know, this is a way of praising this Prophet. He used to that um, enjoin his family to prayer. I don't want to translate it here as command. Enjoin is probably a better way to convey that meaning. Like to really that make sure your household is praying on a regular basis, on time, preferably in congregation. My goodness. That is not an easy thing, especially as the kids get older and that, you know, it's, it's just so much easier, even if they're praying, just to pray on their own. Quickly pray, right, done, out the door, right, as opposed to, you know, call the avlan, call the ikhama, right, pray, do some basic adhkar after, okay, fine, tawadu, now go. So anyhow, these are all things we're all struggling with. Um, and what we can take from here is, is that, um, we have to know these are principles that we're learning. And so I don't want us to read this and be like, this is totally that out of our reach. So what's the purpose of reading it? No, the principle remains because there's degrees. And you could see it as a continuum of like one to ten. Ten being the, the worst and one being the best. And what they're calling us to is the one. What's the best that we could possibly be? And we have to see where we're at. And if we're at 10, let's get to 9. And it's better to be at 9 than to be at 10. And if someone's at 7, let's try to go to 6. right? But we can't try to bring it down to a 1 if we're really at a 7 or 8. If that's the reality of our situation, that's not wise. Okay. So that cutting back slightly. And that other ways of doing it, when our children do have nice things, at least teaching them to be thankful for what they have. Teaching in the du'a, Alhamdulillah, ladi kasani hadha, wa razaqanihi, mil ghayri hawlin minni wa Look at that du'a that we say when we wear clothing. Alhamdulillah, ladi kasani hadha. I'll praise be to the one who gave me this to wear, wa razaqanihi, and provided me with it. And then look, just as we say for food, mil ghayri hawlin minni wa And we should find a documentary or something like that that walks through the process of making clothes, where it starts, and what happens. And so our children are aware of that, my God, this thread that is on me here didn't come in a vacuum. What had to go into this garment that's tailored and sewn and now that I'm wearing? And so at least that we can give thanks and recognize la hawla wa la but this is not from any hawl or quwa that any of us have. This is a blessing from Allah Jalla Jalalu. And then, if you get a new garment, give the old garment away. That's the sunnah of our Prophet. Is that when he would get a new garment, he would give his old clothes away. When we do our spring cleaning, let go. 
when you have new garments, give old garments away. And that learn just to give and let loose and let go. Teaching our children this is very, very important. And that they used to always like that children to have solid color clothing, that preferably white. Um, but again, that's probably not too, uh, we're not able to maybe do that in our society. Um, but again, the amazing thing is there still are traditional societies to this day that put this into practice. And when you see it, it's something that's beautiful. It's something that really, really is beautiful. So we get as close as possible, maybe at least that we encourage our children to wear white clothes on Jummah, which is the sunnah of our Prophet wasallam, And in his society, that when he says here that it is for, uh, that women and, and, and like this color clothing, um, this is not to disparage the female gender. This is speaking to a cultural tendency in his society. These principles apply to men and women the same. Whether they are boys or whether they are girls, whether they are men, they are uh, of, of or they are women, is that balance is really what we want, and that we have to keep in mind is that these people that are out there that are part of our celebrity culture, they dress a certain way, they talk a certain way, they carry themselves in a certain way, and there is an incredible pull towards this, and especially if our children have access to that social media and they have access to something like Instagram where it's just pictures and pictures and pictures and the vast majority of people that have large followings are people that you don't even want to look at right? and the true people of Allah that never wanted to look at a fasic Muslim let alone a disbeliever with the eye of Ijab of being impressed with them, right? It's perfectly legitimate to look at people, of course, right? If you're not going to like not look at a neighbor if they're not Muslim, that's not what it means here. But with the eye of ijab, of being impressed with them, it's one of the most harmful things of all for your heart to look at someone, a sinful Muslim, let alone a disbeliever, who's likely to be falling into sin as well, with the eye of ijab, wanting to be like them wanting to dress like them, wanting to physically look like them, and all of these things. Whether it's a man or a woman, this is harmful, and it brings darkness to the heart. And is that if we talk about things that are going to prevent wilaya, if this is what we want for our children, whew, these are huge. These are huge. Now, and so then he says, and I know this is a little bit hard to swallow, but truth is truth. وَلَا يُنَعَّمْ جِسْمُهُ بِمَا وَلَا فِرَاشًا أَمْلَسِي بَلْ كُلُّ مَا كَانَتْ بِهِ خُشُونَةً Let's stop there. He should not pamper his body with soft clothes and silken bedding, and everything that has coarseness will be lighter as provision. But the amazing thing is that with scientific study, that the society in which we live knows these realities. They know these realities. And that you'll find a lot of literature out there written by non-Muslims, not even some from a religious perspective, because the Christians and of different denominations have a large amount of literature about these things, much of which overlaps very nicely in our, in our deen. Um, but a lot of even non-religious people understand these as 
that principles that need to be there in terms of how we raise our children. And it is a good thing to teach our children to be tough. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to teach our children to bear pain. Now, not where you are out of balance, of course. And not where that it is um, that um, going, going to put them in a situation where that, that they're just going to keep all their feelings in and never share anything with anyone. But basic things like, no, bear the pain. Take it like a, you know, not, I'm not going to say we say take it like a man, but um, maybe that is questionable whether we should use that terminology or not. But the point is, is that learning to bear, tahammul, you know, one of the most amazing traits, subhanAllah, is when I think about, I mean, just think about um, the, the many of you that have um, grandmothers and grandfathers and what they've been through. I think about my wife's grandmother, Ade, that raising eight children as a widow in Afghanistan in a very male-dominated society and never asking anyone for anything, ever. Never that relying upon other people to support her family. Like, how could you do that? Like, alone with eight children. And her youngest was young, when her husband passed and never got remarried. That's amazing. Like, look what kind of resilience is that? You know, to be able to do that. And the stories that you hear about people that have been in difficult circumstances, that fleeing as refugees and that building their lives, that were people to have one-tenth of that happen to them, they'd be damaged for life psychologically. And that, again... We're trapped in the world in which we live. We're trapped. So we can't be like them. And the Hakim was talking about that in detail when we did the wholesome parenting class. We're trapped. But there are little things that we can do to make things better. Um, I learned the meanings of tahammul in Mauritania. And um, I think I, I forget what stories I tell, what stories I don't tell. Two stories come to mind. One was, there was a friend of mine who was stung by a scorpion. And it was really bad, and it was very painful. And the next day I was explaining to Marab al-Tahash's son that, you know, we're city dwellers, we're not good at bearing pain. And he said, it's all right here. He says, courage comes from the heart. He says, I know a story of a man, I think I've told you all this story, that cut his pinky toe off. I told you that story before. He was that, he was a donkey driver, so that's the their way of cargo was on the back of donkeys. And he was traveling alone with a number of donkeys with provisions and merchandise for some people. And that he didn't realize, but he was bit by a snake on his pinky toe. It was a poisonous snake. And the nearest doctor is like a seven-hour walk, right? No clinics, nothing, right? So you're going to die, right, within a short period of time. So he instantaneously pulled out an axe and chopped off his pinky toe. I'm sorry, this is a gruesome example. And then bandaged up his foot and kept walking. And if he wouldn't have done that, right, he would have died. Right, so survival. And usually when we're at that level, we'll be able to do what we wouldn't normally be able to do. I mean, 
But this is the story that Muhammad Taha told me. And it's just like, he, he was so, his whole point was, it's here in the heart. Learning. I remember the cars, we used to travel on the back of cars. And literally, so they're like pickup trucks. And they have all the people's things and they put a net on top of it. And then there's about 15 to 20 people, males, females, women, children, on the back. And there's no concept of like, there's too many people or whatever else. And there's no roads, you're in the desert. And the only thing you're holding on to is the net. And the driver's not going to stop for anyone. And he's racing through the desert and this type of thing. And you are holding on for dear life. And I remember being there and, you know, I got like really soft, like supposed to be in like an office type hands. And, you know, you're holding on to this net. And it's like, if you let go, that's it. You're going to fly off. And it's like, it clicked for me, like, as I'm holding on, and it's difficult, like, this is what tahammul is, right? This is what bearing difficulty is. You have no choice. This drive is like four or five hours, and you simply can't let go, and you're just holding on. And I was just, it just dawned on me, like, in that moment, like, that's what tahammul is. Like, you're bearing weight, you're bearing difficulty, and there's no way out. You can't do anything other than be patient and to let it pass. And um, that there's minor ways that we could teach our children these things. Minor ways. Um, and at least if at every little, you know, prick or any little thing that's bothering them, we teach them to be patient. And... Um, a lot of our children find it difficult to even sit still. Even when they're older, when they're younger, right? That's different. Uh, different children have, or children are different when they're younger. Even children that are younger can also learn, but when they get older, um, unless that they're special needs, that they're, they're, there really isn't an excuse. We should teach them. And some of our children, that you know, that's one of the things that the, the the people that are like seven, eight, nine years old and above should not be leaning against anything in the in the in in, in the gatherings. The younger children should be sitting. That, and I think there's just small things that we can do. I don't think that's too much to ask uh, for, for the younger people. Right? Uh, we used to, in, in, in Tarim, they used to forbid us, if you're under 40, you couldn't uh, sit against any of the pillars. Those were reserved for 40 and above. And anyone, now, now we spoil everyone. We give them floor chairs and everyone's chilling. We just, we spoil everybody. But with the children, I think those are small things that we teach them that, you know, to sit up straight and to sit cross-legged. A lot of kids can't sit cross-legged for more than five minutes. So maybe we should at home have times where certain vicars that we recite every day, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening, and we have a policy that everyone for that 15 minutes sits cross-legged and no twitching and moving around, and just sits cross-legged. And at first, it's hard for them. Two minutes, and right, right, moving around, right. But, and um, anyhow, little things like this, I do think, are really important, even though they seem like they're small. يُسَلِّبُ الْعَضَاءَ وَلَا يُبَالِي بِالْمَشْيَ وَبِسَائِرِ الْأَعْمَالِ وَيُمْنَعَ نَوْمَ النَّهَارَ قَطْعًا خَوْفَ الْكَسَلِ أَوْ يَتَّخِذْهُ طَبْعًا That it strengthens the limbs and makes his limbs resilient. So he is bothered not by walking or other actions. He should always be prevented from sleeping in the day, 
fearing laziness or that it becomes a habit. Um, again, different cultures are, are, are different, but in general, is that doing things to present to prevent laziness in the children is a traditional principle that we have to that find ways of bringing that right into that our own context. What are reasonable, balanced, wise ways, things that we can do that help pre pre prevent laziness in children? Because I, I have to tell you that it's a serious problem. And I have a book upstairs by Philip Zimbardo called That Man Interrupted. And one of the five things that's destroying young men is video games. And um, I've had people come to complain to me about their spouses because grown men are addicted to video games. And that to the point where it's like an addiction and it's causing problems in the family household. Right? Now, if it's a grown man playing with his child, but if it reaches the point where it's causing a problem in the household, yani, that's an issue. Right? Um, so that finding ways to make sure that our children get exercise, that encouraging them to be outdoors. Um, in our context, um, I do think sports um, are, are a very good way. And not everyone has to do them. They don't necessarily have to even be team sports. They could be different types of sports. We have things locally like the velodrome and cycling. And there's all different ways. But activities are good. Getting them outside the house are good. Um, teaching them to work with the team and then monitoring them. And to see how they are, to see how their attitude is, to see if they're team players, if they do they get down on people, how confident are they, these types of things, all of these things we can that monitor when they do these things. Um, so again, a lot more could be said here, and these are again principles that we can then fill in the details that in uh, in, in on our own time uh, So why don't we, inshallah ta'ala, um, stop there. Let me just see if there's anything that I want to add here. And then... Please feel free to uh, uh, to participate in the discussion if there's anything you'd like to say or even put into question or to that uh, you're concerned about or that just want this further clarification on. Please feel free. She said, in every given situation, one should choose what is the most beloved to Allah and His Messenger. With regards to the toddler, feed him or her food that is most beloved to Allah and His Messenger, so that his, this food goes on to be the food he or she desires throughout his or her life. Pumpkin, barley bread and barley soup, cucumber, dates, grapes, raisins and melon were all eaten by our beloved Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Those who have not grown up eating pumpkin or barley bread find these foods difficult to get accustomed to and will not have such blessed food as part of their diet. Allah also mentions an array of other blessed foods in the Quran such as garlic, lentils, onion, ginger, and fish. We should prefer to feed our children such food over a happy meal at McDonald's even if it professes to be halal. May Allah bless her. Um, Abdullah. And that's a whole other dimension which is taking it to a whole other level, not just eating healthy, and, but trying to find the sunnah foods in everything. That's, a, that's an amazing perspective. And um, 
that again, it doesn't negate. Different cultures have different types of food that they eat. But there's no doubt that the food that the Prophet is superior. And it's a good thing spiritually for our deen, even if it doesn't become the norm in society, to introduce this, even if it be from time to time, uh, uh, to, to our families and to our children. There will be a lot of blessing and a lot of barakah in that. Okay, are there any uh, questions, comments, contributions, clarifications, contentions? Marhaba. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so the question was uh, three spiritual practices <coughs> for children three to six, and then from seven to nine. Mm. So we'll start with the seven to nine year olds. Um, <coughs> That for seven to nine-year-olds, um, at that age, they're going to start praying. Uh, once they reach age seven, is that you gently encourage them to pray. And, um, um, <coughs> excuse me, when you see this word in Arabic, to command your children to pray age seven, we, we have to stop being so literalist. That doesn't mean that you say, pray, right? It means that you do everything that you can to help your child pray. And that in command, that blessed command of the Rasul includes making praying beloved to the child, adorning it in their eyes, and finding ways where they actually really enjoy it. And that um, at first incentives for if they actually do it, and so forth and so on. That's one, is prayer. And two, the schools differ on this, but I would also, at around that age, have them start fasting even if it be half a day, even if it be part of a day. So I would introduce to them prayer, and I would introduce to them fasting, and um, I would introduce to them at that age from seven to nine um, that short vicars that they could say um, uh, in the morning, and in the evening, and then like things like when they uh, put on their clothing, when they go outside of the house, when they get into the car. So teach them the prophetic duas. When they reach the age of seven to nine, they're able to um, they're able to do it at that time. So prayer, fasting, and then the prophetic duas. And the prophetic duas include, I mean, the glorious treasure. I think is a, is the khirat to musharafa is a very good summation of that. We have the book here, and it's, I think it's available in different places. Um, very succinct, to the point, uh, easy to implement, du'as. Uh, so I would say those three things. Uh, when they're younger than that, from the age of three to six, um, what I would just do then is just to really expose them. At those ages, I would expose them to gatherings of goodness. I would expose them to that dhikr, I would expose them to that praise of the Prophet and that maybe at that age is that you just, you know, before they go to bed at night, you know, just teach them statements like Alhamdulillah, 
you know, subhanAllah. So at that age, I would just really teach them the basic statements uh, that are part of our religious vocabulary. Now, as they, of course, get closer and closer to six, at that age, maybe they're able to memorize the Fatiha or like or like a short surah. Um, oh, she said three. I would say for seven to nine too, that's where also Quran comes in. Um, I forgot to mention that. Um, but, you know, even as they get closer and closer to six, you know, the, the basic phrases, the smaller chapters of the Quran are, I think, also um, are, are a good idea. Would anyone add to that? Anyone like to add to that? Yasser, would you add anything to that? That's very good too. Uh, storytelling would be another uh, a, a, another very good thing. That's actually very good. Thank you. And I think even from a younger age too, kids love stories. Storytelling I think is is a, is a very good one. And then just making it age appropriate in terms of the content and. Uh, Unconditional love, um, extreme patience, empathy, and tolerance. I just think if, if, if once they reach a certain age, it's you just have to show love to them and be their friend and be very patient, very empathetic, and just very tolerant. Because the worst thing that they could do is that reach that age where they're experimenting with life now and just have a memory of their father or mother as just an angry person who's just you know frowning all the time and just that's not what you want right that's not you know um, now a parent cannot um, uh, justify or help their child do wrong you can't as a parent right but there's a big difference between look I love you unconditionally. You're my son. You're my daughter. Um, I don't agree with what you're doing, nor can I validate or support if what you're doing is wrong. However, I always love you. I will always be there for you. This is what... Da, 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 and and um, that I think that that's all you can really do at that stage. And then to the degree that they open up is to the degree that you go to different stages after that of teaching them certain things, asking, you know, suggesting certain things. Um, but I've found that um, we, I, I honestly, um, and I've said this before, but we can never, ever, ever underestimate the power of du'a. Ever. Ever. You can never mm -hmm. underestimate the power of du'a. And I've been asked before, is it, what else can we do for Muslims besides du'a? Right? And it's just, I was really like irked by that question. Because it's like as if that we are doing du'a, right? Because du'a doesn't just mean once, right? It means like making du'a 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 times a day in nightly weeping in tahajjud daily for 15, 20 years. That's du'a. And how many people on the face of this earth are doing du'a in that with that meaning? 
one in how many thousands. So um, we can never underestimate the power of du'a to our children. And <clears throat> that to also recognize that the whole point of life is to receive the mercy of Allah. And that we receive the mercy of Allah by Allah and through Allah, not because of anything that we've done. Right? No one's actions will save them unless Allah envelops them in His mercy. That's what our Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That, Right? So, when you know that, then you know that, okay, that let's just try to that hope for Allah's mercy for all of us. Right? So, um, th that's what comes to my mind. Um, I don't know again if anyone would like to add to that or anyone like to add to that? I'm sure you all have many better suggestions than the ones that I'm making. Kids are getting older, and I'm forgetting the titles at this point. What would any, what would you all suggest? Do you all have any books that you use? Uh, good works, good works company or publishing company for producing disclosures. Good works is the publishing company. Okay. Islamic Anyone else have any other? Islamic Foundation is another publisher. I don't know if this would be good for children, but they're like mother <coughs> Okay. Yeah, that's a little bit older, right? Yeah, it's a little Yeah, I don't know what age. Stars on the Prophet. That's for older. That's older, though, too. Right? You can tailor it to children. So maybe what it has to be done is that parents have to read the stories and then kind of filter them and tailor them to children. So, been around the messenger, that's one. Um, I know there's increasing a lot more. You know, the new Ghazali series of uh, Fons Bate. There's a lot of benefit in there, and that's that's supposed to be for different ages. Uh, I think that's one lead. Oh, there's the um, the uh, yeah. That what what what's her name? Yeah, not Miriam Sinclair, not her, but there was a. No, but those good. She has like on on Yusuf and and other. What's her name? Miriam Saint Clair. Yeah. Um. What else? Yeah, I had a CD set from Walter like years ago once for about a child who sang it. I forgot the name. Mm. Anyone else have any other? I think those are some suggestions, and I and I uh, w would uh, if you look at uh, like a Mecca Books like website. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know if they're following from America or not, but uh, I think that they'll have quite a few options under the children's books and. Mecca books, yeah. Mm. Wow. The last question, the easy one, right? At the very end. Um that's a very, very 
very important uh, question. And um, I've been thinking a lot about this a lot, um, just because that it, it seems to, it not seems to be, it is a major crisis. And um, there's something about the time in which we live where that conceptions of that masculinity and femininity, manhood and womanhood are really, have been really warped and they continue to be more and more warped. And on one hand in our deen is that we um, do have, we, we have, not even on one hand, we have a very clear conception of these meanings in our deen that allow for beautiful variations. So it's not a cookie cutter that this is the only way to be a woman, this is the only way to be a man. There is nuance in our very clear understanding of both manhood and of both womanhood. And certainly that the source of both are the exact same. And that the source of both are realizing is that we have been created to know a lot. The same fundamental purpose of a woman is the same fundamental purpose of a man. It's the exact same. It is to know Allah. At that level, it is the exact same. And then there's various degrees after that. And certainly, at in the most outward dimension, there are things specific to womanhood and things specific to manhood. And then there is a whole long list, which is again, either somewhere in the middle or closer to probably the foundation, where it's also the same. All of the traits of character, all of the virtues, are just as womanly as they are manly, just as manly as they are womanly. You don't describe a trait of karam being a male trait. That's a male and female trait. You don't describe a trait of hilm, forbearingness, being a male trait. That is a male and female trait. And so that... Um, Unfortunately, that our understanding of womanhood and of man, you can't speak of womanhood without understanding the human being as the, being the Khalifa on earth. You can't under, speak of womanhood without understanding the human being as that being created to know Allah. You cannot speak of womanhood without understanding the importance of virtue in relation to the human being. You cannot speak of woman without understanding the importance of taklif and responsibility and hukuk and rights. And all of these things are mirrored on the side of men. And then there's other that dimensions outwardly that uh, are specific to each. Um, and so that I, 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 there's, there's only so much that I could say in a very short period of time about to answer that question. But uh, what I will say is um, it is a simultaneous process of understanding the tendencies, because the question was specific about manhood, understanding the tendencies of our time that are trying to undermine that our clear conception of manhood as Muslims. And that finding ways to mitigate those tendencies and at the same time that put our young men in environments where they understand and most importantly live that what it means to become a man and the same thing applies for women. And what you will find very quickly in this conversation is it's a matter of environment. It's a serious problem. Because that many environments that kids are constantly in and we can't really get out are toxic. 
and they're completely underlining that the idea of masculine in one or two ways. Either on one extreme, a toxic type of masculinity, which has nothing to do with true religious masculinity, or on another extreme where that men are taking on that traits that are really that have nothing to do with manhood. And I don't even know if I want to say here that being more effeminate, you could say that, um, but um, uh, but uh, but masculinity is somewhere in the middle, and that our conception of it is comprehensive, that from beginning to end, and so that that's really the process, is in terms of learning how to inculcate in your child a complete perspective of what manhood is. And slowly taking measures to do that as they get older and older and older and older while trying to mitigate some of these forces, which you can do, but it requires an abundance of knowledge. And the same thing is for that. Uh, and, and, and then realizing in this whole process, there's only so much you can do and that's all you could do. Uh, but increasingly is that uh, men are becoming more manly, becoming less manly and women are becoming less womanly, and it's a problem. And it's a problem. And um, it, it has to be addressed. This is one of the most important things of all to address. And for this past year, year and a half, I've been thinking a lot about Futua. And um, I've really found in this idea of Futua, of spiritual chivalry, um, a solution to this problem for both men and women. For both men and women and um, again it's just a matter of how to actually live it this is really the problem and our lifestyles oftentimes are not conducive to really doing what needs to be done so that that our that young ladies grow up to be true women and that our young men grow up to be true men so may Allah ta'ala give us tawfiq and that's not really an answer to our question it's more of kind of explaining it, but the details to that question are many, and it's not easy. But I hope to, at least by what I've said, spark a conversation, and hopefully people will start to take this seriously. Um, because that, what is the greatest, that no one was more of a man than Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And what is his greatest trait? Rahmah. Rahmah. And most people would associate Rahmah more with women. But it's the greatest trait of the Rasul. You can't be a true man without Rahmah. You can't. That's the greatest trait of the Rasul, is Rahmah. And so it just, that's just a, a small example of that how warped people's conceptions become. And yes, when you speak about um, you know, the parent's effect on the child and the Yani, yes, maybe archetypally sometimes the mother represents more mercy than the father represents more justice, and but it's not that simple. Right? It's not that simple. And nor does that negate Rahmah being at the center of our ethical perspective for both men and women. Right? So, anyhow. Okay, to give us tawfiq in all of our different affairs. Allahumma, we ask you to protect our children. Ya Arhamar Rahmin, bless them to be able to be raised in the best of ways. Ya Arhamar Rahmin, Allahumma, we ask you, despite everything that they are facing, all the challenges that are before us, 
to make them strong in their iman and to bless them with yaqeen ya arhamar rahmin and to guide them to the salat al-mustaqim and all of the mistakes that they make and all of the mistakes that we make Allahumma we ask ya Allah that when we make those mistakes that we receive mercy from you that is a means for the forgiveness of those mistakes and a means for the correctness of our behavior ya arhamar rahmin bless us to be able to adhere to the straight path and be able to worship you and solely for your sake, Ya Rahman Rahim, with complete sincerity in truthfulness and everything is that we do. Bless us and bless our children and our communities, Ya Rahman Rahim. Bless us all to be able to receive your mercy in the dunya and in the barzakh and in the akhirah and attach our hearts to your love and to the love of Sayyidina Muhammad وسلم, and the righteous of this ummah. من النميين والصديقين وشهداء الحرب والصالحين وحسن أولئك رفيقا اللهم اجعلنا معهم وفيهم برحمتك أرحم الرحمين وركنية صالحة جامعا شامل خيرات الدنيا آخر بسر الفاتحة إلى حضرة النبي